you would turn with me in your copies of God's Word to the book of Acts, chapter 1. You'll find Acts in the New Testament right after the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and right before Paul's letter to the Romans. We are obviously beginning a new study this morning, and I am so thrilled to begin. I'll admit that this is not a book I have given that much attention to in the past. It's easy for me to jump straight from the Gospels to Romans, and Acts has kind of been skimmed by me in the past. Well, I can promise you we are not going to skim it. My plan is to spend about 45, 40 to 45 sermons in this book of 28 chapters, and it's going to be incredible. Um, I'm just, I'm excited from the first 11 verses. It is going to be so much fun, and I hope that you're as excited about it as, as I am. And before we jump into it, I want to give you a brief introduction. Now, usually when you start a new book, there's a lot of pastors will just do one whole introductory sermon where they'll talk about the, the author and the time and date and circumstances in which the book was written, and they'll go through themes and uh, key figures to watch out for. <clears throat> I'm, I'm not going to do that so much. Uh, we'll have a bit of an introduction this week, and then for the next couple weeks, you'll get a little more. Things, things that I'll come across and say, yeah, I should have mentioned that, Th- those will be included. So instead of getting just one whole introductory sermon, for these first few weeks, you will get little chunks of introduction, and hopefully that's helpful to you. And we'll start by simply saying that Acts is the second book in a two-part series written by Luke. You may remember Luke was a physician by trade, but he also proved to be a historian, a writer, an investigative journalist. He was quite the Renaissance man. And he set out to write a history of the life of Jesus and the expansion of the church. And as it turns out, it was too much to put in one volume. He was physically, literally limited by space. In the early church, Luke would have been writing on a papyrus scroll. Papyrus scrolls, I think the longest they got was around 35 feet. And so if you couldn't fit it in there, that was it. That's all the space they had. It, it became too bulky to carry. And so Luke found too much information to fit on just one scroll. So he wrote two volumes. His first volume is obviously the Gospel of Luke, which tells us the life and ministry of Jesus. And we should be so thankful for that volume because Luke is unique in so many ways. In his Gospel, we're given the wonderful narrative surrounding the birth of Jesus that we read every year at Christmas. You know, that famous passage that Linus reads on stage during the Charlie Brown Christmas special. That's exclusive to Luke. Or what about miracles? Well, not miracles, but I meant to say parables. There there are parables that are only found in Luke. Parables such as the Good Samaritan, the Lost Coin, the Prodigal Son, 
the rich man and Lazarus. Those are only found in Luke. So we should be so grateful to have his gospel. And then he, he filled up one roll of papyrus and then he was on to the next. And in that second one, it was this book, the book of Acts, in which he recounts the big events that take place after the ascension of Jesus, after his return into heaven. And Luke picks up in this second volume right where he leaves off in the gospel. They're in Jerusalem at the very tail end of Jesus' ministry. And he goes on to tell his readers of the work of the Holy Spirit and the birth and growth of the church. Now, let's talk about this name, Acts, for a moment. In my Bible, and I would guess in yours as well, when you look at the very top of the beginning of this book, it says, the Acts of the Apostles. I don't believe, from my reading, I don't believe that that is a name that Luke came up with. That was a name that was given to this book by the early church. The Acts of the Apostles. We're going to see them. Philip, Peter, Paul, Stephen. We're going to see them building and planting the church. So hence the name Acts of the Apostles. Now, there's nothing wrong with that title, but if you wanted to be real, really theologically nitpicky, which I do right now, let's, let's put our spectacles on and be real nitpicky, it would be wholly appropriate to title this book The Acts of the Holy Spirit Working Through the Apostles. The Acts of the Holy Spirit Working Through the Apostles. Now, the Holy Spirit, this, this book is not unique in that the Holy Spirit works in this book and not other books. The Holy Spirit works in all the books of Scripture. The Holy Spirit inspired all the authors of Scripture. There is not one book that was written apart from His inspiration. But the Holy Spirit is very unique here in that He is poured out in a way that is not seen in other books. In other books of the Bible, you might have one individual or one prophet who is uh, filled with the Spirit, but here we see the Spirit poured out in a way that had not happened before. One commentator said that you could call Acts the autobiography of the Holy Spirit. All of the ministry that we will see done was accomplished by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, why focus on this? Well, it's because it's not the acts of the apostles alone that turned the world upside down. I know it might be easy for us to look back at the apostles and just think that they were superhuman individuals that we will never be. And surely they had, and we'll talk about this a lot in the future, in future sermons, there were things about the apostles that they could do that we can't. I believe that the gifts of speaking in tongues and the gifts of healing and the miracles that are performed are gifts that we no longer have. They were exclusive to this age, and we'll talk about that more when we get there. So there were things they could do that we cannot now, but 
They were not superhuman, elite Christians in some way that we will never be. They were faithful individuals who the Spirit used. They didn't heal and preach and teach by their own power. They did it all through the power of the Spirit. That's a theme we're going to see over and over again. R.C. Sproul, in his introduction to his Acts commentary, writes this, quote, In the book of Acts, we see the footprints of the Holy Spirit in and through the footprints of the apostles. As a sailing ship is carried about by the wind, so the apostolic mission in the early church was carried about by the Spirit, end quote. So you think of a ship that is being propelled forward by a wind, and that is exactly what we see happening, which is why you could call this the acts of the Holy Spirit through the apostles. He is all over this book, and we're going to see that again and again. But today, let's pray and then get into the text. Father God, we thank you for another opportunity to study your word. I ask that you would work among us this morning. Send your spirit. Father, we know that through the preaching of your word, the spirit works and it change, he, he changes people. So we ask for that this morning and we ask for that going forward every Lord's Day when we open your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's read our text. Acts chapter 1, 1 through verse 11. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as they went, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee. Why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Right, are we ready? We ready to go, starting Acts. Let's look at verse 1 together. 
In the first book, the Gospel of Luke, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Okay, so don't get hung up on that word apostle. I was going to do it today. I cut that section out. We're going to get there either next week or the following week. We're going to talk a lot about the apostles. So just just wait on that. You will get that difference very soon. But what we see here is very self-explanatory. Luke is saying that in my previous volume in the Gospels, I chronicled the acts and the teachings of Jesus up to the point of his ascension. And I'm giving you now the instructions, what happened that he, uh, what happened in the instructions that he gave to his apostles before being taken up. We also have this mention of a name, Theophilus, which Theo is tied to the Greek word for God and uh, philof- uh, uh, Theophilus, the second half, is, is tied to one who is loved. So it, it's confusing to translate. This name either means lover of God or one who is loved by God. So it's, it's one of those two. But we ask, who is Theophilus? And if you've read Luke's gospel, you've seen this name before. At the beginning of Luke's gospel in chapter 1, we read these words. Um, let's see. In Luke chapter 1, it seemed good to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you've been taught. So Luke is writing to a man named Theophilus. In Luke's gospel, he calls him most excellent. This points to uh, the likely possibility he's a man of high social status. Possibly a, some form of royalty or uh, some uh, political leader. And apparently, and I think this is very likely as well, Theophilus has funded Luke's research. Theophilus has made it possible for Luke to travel around and gather eyewitness testimony. All of the traveling expenses he will need to go to Jerusalem and Ephesus and Antioch and Athens and all these places and speak to eyewitnesses who were there and then compile all their testimony, Theophilus is most likely responsible for that. He was a devout Christian of high social status and Luke is writing these books for him that he might have certainty concerning the things he's been taught. Certainty because Luke is gathering eyewitness testimony. That's who Theophilus was. And then on to verse 3, we read that he, Jesus, presented himself alive to them, to the apostles, after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So you have this period between the resurrection and the ascension where the apostles encounter the risen Christ. He presents himself to them after his suffering by many proofs. You think of uh, the most well-known example, doubting Thomas. Thomas in John 20, 
makes the statement, I will not believe unless I can see the nail holes in his hands and unless I can put my own hand in the spear hole in his side. Unless I can do that, I will not believe. And Jesus tells him, Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Thomas, put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Jesus is offering proofs. Jesus spoke with them about the kingdom of God. We remember the incident on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, where you have uh, the best Bible study that's ever happened, best Bible study of all time. Jesus takes these two disciples through all the scriptures, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, and he shows them how they all concern him. These are a few of the things that are happening in this period of 40 days between the resurrection and the ascension. But there's another quick note here, and I'm drawing it out from this mention of the proofs that Jesus provided and the fact that Luke is recording eyewitness testimony. This is very important for us to remember. Christianity is a historical religion. Christianity is not a religion that is based on ideas or philosophy. It's an idea that is based on history. It's based on historical events. And if you dismiss the history and just simply want to hold on to the ethics or morality or teachings of the Bible, you're going to be left with nothing. Now, there are other religions that aren't as dependent upon history. You could completely dismiss the founder from history, but if you still have the teachings and the laws and the morality and the philosophy of that religion, it can exist fine. I think Buddhism would be one example. You don't have to have a historical Buddha. As long as you have the teaching and the philosophy, you'll be fine. I could say the same with Islam. You could dismiss a historical Muhammad, and yet if you have the five pillars of Islam that you're able to practice, as long as you have those, your religion can go on. But Christianity is different. If you remove history, if you remove the historical Jesus and the events that took place, you have nothing. A lot of people will try to to do this. They just want the ethics of the Bible. They want the morality of the Bible. And, you know, we don't have to worry about... We don't have to worry about the, the virgin birth, the sinless life, the atoning death, the resurrection. We just want the teachings of Jesus. If you do that, your Christianity is meaningless. These apostles did not die for some moral ethic or some philosophy. They laid down their lives because they had seen the risen Christ. So remember, ours is a historical religion. And if you take away the virgin birth, the sinless life, the atoning death, the resurrection, you don't have Christianity. And I hope that that is a great comfort to you. That our religion is based on historical fact, not merely a Christian philosophy. 
on to verse 4. While staying with them, he, Jesus, ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. Jesus is telling them, don't leave town. Stay in Jerusalem. Wait for the promise of the Father. And what is that promise? Well, it's the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says that he will come on you not many days from now. And Jesus is saying, you know, if, if you thought it was special following me around for these last three years, you haven't seen anything yet because the Spirit is going to fundamentally change not only your life, but how you proclaim the gospel. He's going to make your preaching effective. As I was reading in preparation for this sermon, there was something that I found it was so incredibly encouraging and I wanted to share it with you. Especially encouraging for a small church like ours. Okay, And I hope this is something that we never forget. It's something, please don't let me forget this. The author wrote this, quote, God does not build his church through gimmicks or programmatic cleverness. The church is not dependent on marketing strategies for its success. Our only hope to see lives changed by the gospel is to faithfully proclaim God's word and then trust God's spirit to make our proclamation effective. End quote. Those are wonderful, wonderful words to Remember, I I don't have to be, as your pastor, some marketing genius. We don't have to fill up our church calendar with programs and events to keep the people busy every night of the week and to attract more and more people. We don't have to have more money and shining lights to bring people in. It's the proclaiming of the word and the working of God's Spirit. Now, there's nothing wrong with churches that have after-school programs, and uh, you just go down the list. All the ministries that are a part of their church. I'm not saying those, those are not bad things. Those are not things you should avoid. But what I am saying is that they're not necessary. They're not necessary for the building of the church. God builds his church by the working of his spirit through the proclamation of the word. That's it. That's all the disciples did. They didn't have youth houses or children's choirs or church camps or or a quilting ministry. What did they do? They faithfully preached the word and the spirit did the rest. I wonder if we today really believe that the Holy Spirit working through the preaching and teaching of the Word is enough? Is it sufficient to build the church? We'll see in Acts that yes, it is. And that's very encouraging to this small church solo pastor. I hope it is to you as well. This doesn't only apply to 
us as the corporate church, it applies to our own lives. Mine and yours, how are, how are we grown? As we believe the gospel, we consume God's word in times of personal devotion and in times of Bible study with others. We, we consume God's word and then the spirit works. The Spirit makes it effective. The Spirit changes us. This is how we are grown as well. Look at verse 6. We're still in that 40-day period between Jesus' resurrection and his ascension. And Luke records one of the questions that all all the apostles wanted to know. We see it in verse 6. Lord... Will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? You know what they were asking. They were saying, all right, all right, Lord, we've, we've followed you around and we've seen your earthly ministry. You died on the cross for our sins and that was wonderful. We thank you for that. You've risen from the grave and oh, that was more wonderful than we could have ever hoped. But now, don't you think it's time that we kick out the Romans and make our nation Israel, the top dog? Don't you think it's time for that? We've, we've read in the Old Testament that David's kingdom is going to be restored. When is the Israeli empire going to be a thing? Jesus, is that, is that going to happen pretty soon? We hope. That's what they're asking. Then in verse 7, we see Jesus' response. He says, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. What's Jesus saying? None of your business. None of your business, disciples. There's a humorous quote that Augustine first records. Augustine did not say this. I think Augustine heard someone else say this and he he recorded it down. And he didn't really like this quote because he was a thinker and a he liked to ask a lot of questions. Calvin really liked this quote, though, and you'll see why in a moment. I think Luther recorded it as well, but it goes something like this. Someone approaches their pastor and they say, Pastor, and I, I really appreciate this, and you're about to see why. Someone approaches the pastor and they say, Pastor, what was God doing before he created the world? And to that, the pastor responds, He was making hell for overly curious men who ask prying, silly questions. That's what the disciples are doing. They're trying to get information about something that was none of their business. They are prying. And Calvin states that this is a grave mistake for believers to make. He says this, quote, We must make it a general rule to be content with God's revelation and to look upon any further probing as a very serious sin, end quote. So a general rule for us, be content with God's revelation and look upon any further probing as sin. We remember that in the word of God, everything we have in here is given to us on a need to know basis. Our God has given us everything we need to know for salvation. He's given us everything we need to know to be faithful and to know how to 
worship Him faithfully and how to live faithfully. He's given us all of that. Calvin continues, quote, The true way to be wise is to let our learning keep pace with our master's teaching and to be glad not to know those things he hides from us, end quote. So to be wise, we want to keep pace with our master's teaching. It is our focus, and we don't need to know the things that he hides from us. Be glad not to know them. Again, the Bible is sufficient. We don't need silly books. I'll pick on one. We don't need silly books like those written by people who have died and then come back to life and now claim that they can tell us all about heaven. And they can say, heaven is for real. I experienced it. We don't need that. We have the Bible. We don't need modern day prophets telling us when Armageddon and Doomsday will take place. We have the Bible. We have to be content with his word and be glad not to know the things that he hides from us. That's what Jesus is getting at here. It is not for you to know times and seasons the Father has fixed by his own authority. Remember that verse. The next time, I I know what happens. The next time you're scrolling through a Facebook news feed... And you see someone announcing that the end of days is upon us because a certain political party is in power. Or maybe there's a new cell phone service coming out and everyone's worried about that. Or turbulence in the Middle East. Or maybe something to do with the moon. And you're tempted to say, Pastor, I saw something on Facebook. Tells me that Jesus is coming back quite soon. What do you think? It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. See, we want to know the future because we want to have some control on it or feel like we have some control. His authority, not our authority. So we are content and glad to let the mystery be mystery. Instead, Jesus says, you are to be faithful here and now. We see this in verse 8. After essentially saying none of your business, Jesus goes on to say, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That, my friends, is the most important verse in the book of Acts. Right here, we've already hit it. If you want a summary of the book, if you say, John, what is Acts about? Verse 8, right there. That's a summary of the entire book. The Spirit will come upon you. You will receive power. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. That's your outline of the entire book. I mean, just think about it. Acts 1 through 7, they are witnessing in Jerusalem. Acts 8 through 11, they witness in all Judea and Samaria. And then from chapters 12 to 28, they witness to the end of the earth. You have these concentric circles spreading out from Jerusalem. 
Now, we've already talked about the power of the Holy Spirit working through the apostles. I did that in my intro, and that's something, again, that we're going to come back to. But let's talk about this term, witness. They were to be witnesses for Christ. What does that mean? It simply means that they are Christ's messengers. They tell the good news, and they really believe it. There's a fun story I was reminded of. It took place uh, somewhere on the British Isle. I can't remember if it was Scotland or England, but George Whitfield was preaching, and he was going to start preaching early, and a lot of people were getting up to go hear him. And this man leaves his house, and he's walking down the street to go hear Whitfield preach. He would preach to thousands. And he's walking down the street, and he notices he's walking beside a pretty famous guy, a philosopher named David Hume. David Hume was not a Christian. He's a skeptic, actually somewhat of, of, of an opponent to Christianity. Um, and, and so this man is surprised, and he says, Mr. Hume, why, why are you going to hear George Whitfield preach? You don't believe the gospel. And David Hume looked back at him and said, you're right. I don't believe the gospel, but he does. And I want to go hear him. Would it be the same for us? That not only do we tell the good news, but we believe it in a way that people would know he or she believes the gospel. You know, we can make witnessing so complicated and we feel intimidated. We feel like we have to have all the right answers and we can't say anything wrong and we just have to wait for the right timing. And so we just don't even try. It's like we forget that the power does not come from us. Remember, the apostles do not turn the world upside down by their own power. It's done by the Spirit. And I just want to encourage you that in times when you're having a conversation with someone, the Spirit will be that power for you and give you the words and the wisdom needed. And it's simple. We just tell the truth about who Jesus is and what he has done. We don't have to get into philosophy. You don't have to know Hebrew or Aramaic. Simply tell who Jesus is and what he has done. He's the Son of God come in the flesh. He died to pay for our sins. He was resurrected. Now he is exalted in heaven. And he calls us to believe in him that we might receive forgiveness and eternal life. We make this way too complicated. We're to be witnesses. We're to bring the good news. Well, where were they to take it? You know, I'm going to go out on a limb and say they wouldn't have been very excited about any of these places on the list. Jerusalem? The city that just murdered our Lord. You want us to stay here and tell about who Jesus is and what he has done in Jerusalem when they've just crucified Jesus. Judea? We've already been there. They did not like us. 
I don't know, Jesus, if you've forgotten. We weren't very well received there. We weren't very popular. They aren't very Christianity friendly. Samaria? Ugh. Minister to those dirty, half-breed Samarians? Samaritans? Gross. We don't want to do that. The end of the earth? Go to the Gentiles? Come on, really? You know, the pagans up there in Europe running around in the woods naked, worshiping tree gods? Them? Yes, them. And praise God for it. By the power of the Holy Spirit, these apostles were going to do something that had socially, that that was a social and ethnic taboo. They were going to cross lines. They were going to go to Samaritans. They were going to go to Gentiles. They were going to go to places where they were not accepted. And the Spirit would work. And as we will see, the lame walk. The dead came to life. 3,000 come to Christ in a single day. And when we get to Ephesus, we'll see that seedy business owners begin a riot because the gospel has taken such a hold in Ephesus that they're losing money. And so they riot. That's what happens. And some 200 years later, you have Christians like Tertullian, who who wrote this around the year 200. Tertullian wrote this, quote, We are but of yesterday, but we have filled every place among you, cities, fortresses, towns, marketplaces, tribes, companies, palace, senate, forum. We have left nothing to you but the temples of your gods, end quote. That's where... They go. The church permeates everywhere. And it's built on the word by the Spirit. We're almost finished for today. Verse 9. And when he'd said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. So immediately after saying these things to them, Jesus is taken up on a cloud into heaven. And notice how it happens. This is incredible. I did not plan this. How is he taken up? A cloud. Didn't we just read about a cloud somewhere else? Huh? Last week, did we see something about a cloud coming down, covering and filling the tent of meeting? I mean, it's, it's awesome. I mean, I just, I laughed out loud in my office this week when, when I saw this. Last week, we see the glory cloud of the Lord descend on the tabernacle, bringing his presence among the people. And this week, that same cloud that traveled before Israel as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire at night, that same cloud that filled the tabernacle and later the temple, That same cloud that Ezekiel saw depart over the east gate before judgment came and Jerusalem fell. That same cloud that surrounded Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration comes down again. 
It overshadows Jesus and it brings him up into the glories of heaven. You know, it's almost as if scripture is telling us one story. It's almost as if there's one thread running through the entirety of scripture, connecting it all together. That it's not just some random assortment of ancient Near East religious literature. We have one story before us. A story all about the triune God of the universe. Last thing for these men in white robes, verses 10 and 11. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So apparently the apostles are standing there gawking and squinting up in the sky, watching as if, you know, like you release a balloon and eventually it just disappears from sight. They're watching Jesus ascend and go up and they're squinting and eventually he passes out of sight and they notice that there are two men in white robes that are among them. And this is not the only time we're going to encounter these individuals in the book of Acts. These are angels, divine messengers, and they bring this message. Why are you staring into heaven? Your Lord is going to return in the same way you saw him leave. So the first time Jesus came, it was as a newborn baby in a humble stable visited by the shepherds. But when he comes again, it will be in power. And on that day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I think it's important to notice here, of all the things that these angels could have told them, what do they say? They want the people to know immediately after Jesus left them, they want them to know that he's coming back. It's the first thing they say. Why are you staring into heaven? He's going to return. He will stay in heaven until the appointed day. So don't look for him in vain. His bodily presence will be in heaven until the time fixed by the Father. But dear believer, just as sure as you saw him depart... He will come again. We are still waiting on that same promise ourselves. It's just as sure today as it was when it was first spoken. And oh, that he would help us and give us grace so that on that day we would be found faithful. Let's pray. Father God, I'm so excited to begin this this new book. And Lord, we remember that there is power in your word. There is power that is not inherent to the minister. It's not inherent to any of us. There is power that when your word is opened, the spirit works and does incredible things. Father, we look with great expectation for your spirit to work through the preaching of this book. And we will give you all the glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.